You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, When Ancient Meets Current, The Seven Churches in Revelation. For more sermons and resources, visit firstfamily.church. We've been journeying in somewhat of a loop through the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. I want to show you the map today. Preachers sometimes are known for maps that are boring to people. I want to show you the map. But it, it, it's, it shows John from Patmos writing to seven churches that began at Ephesus, the closest one to where he was stationed, and then some, made somewhat of a circular loop. We come to the sixth of those cities today, the city of Philadelphia. And if any of those cities knew about change, it would be the city of Philadelphia. A little bit of history for you about this city. Um, there was an earthquake that occurred uh, really close to it. And in fact, last week I talked about a volcano. And there were volcanic mountains in the region, but I was mistaken. It, it's really an earthquake that caused last week's city to, um, to be um, in that situation. There was a lot of damage and so forth. So it's really an earthquake. There were volcanoes in the area, but I misspoke there. So this same earthquake that about 17 eru- um, caused a lot of splits. I about said erupted there, didn't I? That caused a lot of upheaval. Um, it, it caused Tiberius, the emperor, to help this city. And as an as a expression of gratitude, they changed the name of the city to Neo-Caesarea. Now, it was kind of still known as Philadelphia. This was kind of its honorary name. Decades later, under another emperor who helped them financially, they changed the name to Flavia. So at least three different names. In addition to that, the city knowing about change, because of the earthquake as well as the volcanic potential, they were always moving in and out of the cities. Uh, They'd go in and stay, then there would be fear, it would strike, and they'd move out of the city. So there was always a change, there was always adjustments. In fact, here's a picture of one of the city's archways It's one of the few that are standing because most of them, you might call these things pillars of the city, pillars to the entrance. They just never lasted. Even though there were many more, they never lasted because of the nearby potential for volcanoes or earthquakes. And so the city was always one that was enduring and undergoing change, whether in its inhabitants, whether in its name. But ironically, this is the very thing that the church in Philadelphia did not do. They didn't change. In fact, of the seven churches talked about, this one gets the least amount. They don't get any criticism at all. They get the greatest compliments. I think the church at uh, Smyrna was one that would rival in that sense. They got very little criticism. But this one here in Philadelphia, most commentators would say it seems to be the best of the seven. In fact, history tells us that even as late as the 20th century, there were five Orthodox Christian fellowship still in the current city. Now, it's not known as Philadelphia. It's in Turkey, and the name slips me, but even as late as the 20th century, five Orthodox Christian fellowships. So this this, uh, city and the church in this city has the longest run, so to speak, at staying true. That's why I think when you look at this letter to Philadelphia, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7 through about verse 13, Here's some overarching themes we're going to see. 
that the city, we know from history, was changing. The church, though, was unchanged. It held fast. It stayed true. It did not deny Christ's name. We'll see that. And that was possible because Christ was unchangeable. We're going to see how he made several promises, and he kept and will keep those promises. And we'll see about his authority, his unchanging authority. So as we read our text today, I want you to kind of keep these three kind of umbrella concepts in mind, would you? So let's take a chance, let's take a minute now and read Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. Here's what Jesus tells John to write. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That's authority, isn't it? This one who has ultimate authority. We'll speak more about what that means in a moment. He says, I know your works. Now pause right there and look down at the middle of verse 8 where he says the phrase again, I know. Do you see that? Here's what I think is happening in this verse. Most scholars and commentators would agree with this, that this seems to be uh, the phrase, Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Almost a parenthetical type of statement. Like he's going to say, I know your works. And he has this sudden thought like, oh, and there's an open door before you, and, and like I said, no one can shut it. I've opened it. Now, back to how I know you. That's kind of what's happening here. In fact, let me read it for you that way. I think it makes a lot of sense, and linguistically, grammatically, it holds up. It says, he says, I know your works. Now, skip down to the next part where it says, I know you have but little power. You've kept my word and have not done on my name. That describes their works. He's saying, this is kind of how I know you. In the middle of that, he inserts this type of thought. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Almost thinking back to what he said earlier, and we're going to see in a minute how that open door is really his activity to bring before his throne all people, Jew or Gentile. So just kind of see this. He says, I know your works. You've not denied my name. You've kept my word, even though you actually are very little. He calls it little power here. It's probably a reference to the fact that they were small in number and consequently small in power. However, they were... They were mighty in spiritual effectiveness. Does that make sense? I mean, God doesn't need big churches to do big things. Amen? He just needs available, humble, submissive people and collections of people. So he says about this church, I know your works. You're small, but yet you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. And so there's this open door before you. About this door, I alone shut it. I alone open it. And so then he says again, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, they are lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And there's a connection here, the synagogue of Satan, these who are saying they're Jews, and the idea of, of the real Philadelphian believers not denying Christ's name. I'll get to that in a minute. Let's just keep reading here. He says, I'm going to make those who are of that synagogue of Satan, I'm going to make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word, here again, they've kept God's word, as it says in verse 8. This time they've kept God's word about patient endurance. He says, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. 
So hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Here's a description of Christ's work at that moment. Here's what he's going to do is he makes these believers a pillar, which, by the way, historically would say a lot to the Philadelphian readers, wouldn't it? If there was always earthquakes, of volcanic potential, if they were always moving in and out, if things weren't stable, if the city was always changing, to have your Lord say, don't worry, there's a day coming when I'll make you a pillar. Your unchangingness now will pay off later as well. Here's how he describes this day when he makes them a pillar. He says, never shall he go out of it. There's this constant, permanent residency in the city of God. I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. That's some serious tattoos, isn't it? Which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So if this is, if this is a, to be understood literally, this is a lot of names on someone's body. <laughs> By the way, distinguish this from the way the Antichrist and the false prophet and the beast mark their followers. How do they mark their followers? 666. Now, whether you take that literally or figuratively, we're not going to debate that here. We may debate that at the end times roundtable on August 28th, okay? But regardless of how you take that, do you see the point Christ is making here in this letter? I know who's mine, and I know who's not mine. And you get marked either way. But he says, I know those who have kept my word about patient endurance, about my name. I know you. And I will do at least three things for you. I'll keep you from the hour of trial. I'll make you a pillar in the temple. Um, I'll make those who are saying they're Christians and are not, they'll come and bow down before your feet. Man, this is amazing. He's going to identify us, fortify us. And so he says at the end, if you have an ear, you should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's this letter, this beautiful uh, letter with no criticism, no complaints, no rebukes to this church at all. Now, I think at the core of this letter is the sense that they have kept God's word. It says they kept his word about not denying his name. Uh, They kept his word about patient endurance. So I'll take a few moments if I could. And I want to analyze how they kept his word and the, and the areas in which, uh, around which they kept his word. What I'll do is when I kind of explain this in somewhat of a technical fashion, we're going to see a lot of scripture that supports what Jesus, through John, is saying. You'll probably have a lot of questions, so we'll try to answer two or three of those questions. Um, in this letter, I'll be honest with you, of the seven, this is the one that has the most eschatology in it. This is the hardest of the letters to understand as well. It's a lot of Old Testament components, a lot of things like, man, what does that mean, and, and, and how, what's, when's it going to happen, and how's it going to happen? So there's going to be a variance of opinions today. I'll say things you're like, I don't agree with that. No problem. It's not a heaven or hell issue. In fact, I will say to you at times, on this one, here's where I land. I'm probably 50.1 to 49.9 on that one. And I'll even say this, on this I currently and lightly hold to this position, all right? Some of these things, we're just like, man, I think this is what's going on here. We have elders and staff and leaders who would say, I don't see it that way, and we get along great, we work together well, we love each other. So there's just some things here that are going to be hard to kind of express and explain. So I want you to hang with me, it'll it'll be almost like seminary-like in ways. We'll take some questions, but I think we'll end with a very uh, clear application that will make a bridge to how this church and our church need to sync up, all right? So 
They're known as the church that keeps God's word. There's no criticism, no complaints. He commends them only for keeping the name and keeping his word. And he says, I've set before you an open door. What's going on here? Well, a lot of it starts by understanding how Jesus describes himself. He says he is the one who has the key of David. Now, some commentators see this as a reference to chapter 1, in which he holds the keys. But I think this is different. This is not considered a, a set of keys, as in chapter 1. This is considered a singular key. So I might even say to you that this letter, from my perspective, doesn't contain a reference to Christ's character from chapter 1. Some would disagree with that, no problem. I've said before that every letter looks back to chapter 1 in Christ's description, perhaps not this one, unless you see this key the same as the key in chapter 1. I see it a little differently now. I think it's a singular key, and it's a messianic key. It's called the key of what? Key of David. So he's saying something here about who belongs in the family of God, who has the right to give access to those in the family of God. In fact, he borrows here a phrase out of uh, Isaiah, and you'll want to look this up, because the issue here he's talking about is the issue of authority. Okay? So this first thing they kept his word about was in regards to Christ's authority. In Isaiah 22, 22, we have this exact phrase that he will open it, no one will shut it, he'll shut it, no one will open it, about a man named Eliakim. Eliakim was the man that God brought forth on the scene when Assyria was trying to invade Judah. And there was a middleman who was playing both sides for the money, and he could not be trusted. I think his name was Sheba or Shebna, I'm not sure exactly. God removed him and instead put in his place a man named Eliakim who was a trusted key holder to the city of Jerusalem. And he would guard it for David. He would allow entrances and exits. He was the one who held the key to the city, installed by God. And when John says here, verbatim for Jesus, that, that Christ is the Holy One. By the way, that's an Old Testament term for Messiah. So there's a lot of Old Testament stuff going here. The true one, the holy one, he's got the key of David. He's saying, just as Eliakim held the authority to grant access into Jerusalem, guess what? Christ, Jesus, I, he's saying, I am the one who holds sole authority to grant access into the Father's kingdom. This is a big, big doctrinal point. Christ alone holds sole authority to say who's in and who's out. He implies, first of all, that the Philadelphians are in because he says, you've not denied my name, you've kept my word. But then he talks about some who are not in, doesn't he? These in the synagogue of Satan. Now, what is that? What is he referencing here? Again, let's talk about this authority issue. He's saying they're not in. That's a pretty critical comment, isn't it? From this we can tell, this was a synagogue in this city with Jews who thought they were actually God's people only because they were ethnic national Jews. Does that make sense? They thought that by their birth, that gave them special privilege to be in God's family, which is why Jesus would say, you're actually not part of my family because you deny that Christ is the Messiah. You're called a synagogue of Satan. You say you're Jews, but you're not. You're lying. Now, how could they be lying if they actually are Jews and they're saying they're Jews. Because what they were saying was, we're God's people. Does that make sense? You follow me? 
They're saying, no, we're, we're God's only people because we're born this way. We're ethnically, nationally God's people, so we're the ones, not you. And Jesus says a striking, startling thing to them. No, just because you were born a Jew does not make you part of my family, and I have the sole authority to grant that access or deny it. I mean, that's stark. That's, that's startling, guys, to a Jew. It reminds us of Jesus' own conversations with the Pharisees in John. Do you recall those? When they would boldly proclaim, we're of Abraham our father. And he said, you're of your father the devil. <laughs> Whoa. Here he says, you're from the synagogue of Satan. He's saying this, you cannot belong to God's family and deny that Jesus is the Holy One, the Messiah. If you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you're... <laughs> then you don't belong to God's family. You belong to Satan's family. And by the way, he says, I'm the one who has the key of David. I have sole authority to grant the access or deny the access of those who are in his family. So I hope this is kind of making sense. He uses an Old Testament story illusion to prove a current point. That only Jesus has the authority to grant access into God's family. That's what he does. And even if you say, well, I'm nationally a Jew, it doesn't make you part of God's family. What makes you part of God's family is believing the truth about who Jesus is. So then whether you're Jew or Gentile, and by the way, that's a word for the rest of us, <laughs> it's that that puts you in God's family. Now, that Old Testament example showing us the New Testament principle that Jesus alone grants access to his family, to God's family, causes a current dilemma for many people. Listen very carefully. Becomes, some will say this, well, Todd, what does then become of the Jewish people? And there's a, a, a field of thought that says that the church has now replaced Israel. And there's some good men who believe that. And there's some good men who don't believe that. Those who don't believe that would say, no, they're two distinct people. Still, there's Jews, and one day God will work with them again as a national ethnic group. And, and so it seems like sometimes in Christianity, and this may not be in your circles as much, but in our field for sure, we, we're always kind of like trying to balance between those who say, well, there is no more Israel in God's eyes, it's the church. They want to replace it totally. And those who say, no, no, there's two distinct groups, and they're going to always be distinct. I don't know if I fall in either one of those. In fact, I would say to you this, and I've thought through this statement all week, so I know who's out there listening. I don't think it's, it's healthy to think an unnecessary replacement or unnecessary distinction. I think it's most healthy and biblical, watch this, to think in necessary fulfillment. It's not, it is no longer the Jew's body, by the way. But it's, uh, it, it's, is there a component that's Jewish? Yes. So is there some distinction? Yes. Is there some replacement? Yes. Instead of focusing on those two words, I think we should say, what has actually occurred is this, necessary fulfillment. Christ has come on the scene as planned from Abraham, fulfilled every one of God's promises, purchased the church, and is now the head of it. And it is not unbiblical or wrong to say that in Christ, God has now created a new man. I'll show you this from Ephesians. A new man. And it's in this new man 
that he will shine and, and portray his glory forever. And this new man is composed of both Jews and Gentiles. Does that make sense? So when you ask yourself, well, who is the people of God that, that, that Jesus alone can grant access to? It is the church. But I don't want you to think in terms of like replacing or distinction. Just think of it in terms of fulfilling all that God had promised. You might want to even say this, maybe merging. Okay? Again, good people can disagree on these points. All right? Let me show you some verses that, kind of, that, that really kind of show what I'm talking about here. That, that Christ alone has, has, has authority to grant access. And he's creating one new man. And that's what he's been up to all along to fulfill God's prophecies. Here's some verses I want to show you. A number of them. We'll read them out loud. Probably some of them is together. Here's Romans 2. He's going to again affirm what's going on here. That your national ethnicity is really not the point when it comes to being part of God's family. And by the way, it never has been. Rahab was not a Jew. Ruth was not a Jew. And there were several who were Jews that were disobedient and lived in unbelief. And in one instance, the ground swallowed them up. They were lost. So just because you were born into Israel, that wasn't a guarantee. Okay? So really, in some ways, things haven't changed. Here's what Paul says, though, to bring clarity to this issue. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That's odd, isn't it? Because you would think, well, if I'm an outward Jew, I am a Jew. Paul said, no, you're not really one of God's people if you're just a national ethnic Jew. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Something has to happen inside to say I'm part of God's family. I'm one of Abraham's descendants. That's a work that happens inside. Look what he says. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise then is not from man, but from God. Pretty clear there. Let's keep reading. Here's Romans chapter 9. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Again, Paul's like, how can you say that? Because he's speaking here in spiritual terms, contrasting with physical terms. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Did you catch that? Pretty clear, isn't it? Pretty clear scripture here. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Wow, it's not just because you're a Jew that means you're in God's family. Instead, it's the children of the promise, speaking of God's promise to Abraham, to bring Christ through his line. So all who believe in Christ are counted as, say with me, in fact, watch this, you as a believer even though you're a Gentile, are an offspring of Abraham. So, can we say that the church has replaced Israel? Well, if I do, if I say yes to that, I'll be criticized by uh, 2 o'clock today. And yet, in some ways, he's saying, Abraham's offspring, man, it's not just Jews. It's all who believe. You're counted as offspring, a definite use of a word here that, replies, that implies physical like descendancy. Let's keep reading here. Several verses I want to show you. Read this together, Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Wow, just put it out there for us, Paul, would you? Here's another verse. verse. Galatians Galatians 6, 16. And And as as for all who walk by this rule, peace of mercy be upon them, and then the the phrase, and upon the Israel of God. And and I'll just be frank with you. The word and is often translated as even. So even if you keep the word and here, I think it's safe to say what Paul is saying in Galatians is that peace and mercy are upon all who have walked by this rule. He talks about in Galatians. 
There's the issue of God. If you insert the word even in it, it makes it more true. That's a true Israel of God. Those who walk by the rule. That Christ alone is enough. That it's not by works of flesh, the keeping of the law. That's Galatians, okay? One last verse to kind of bring some summary to this. Watch this. Ephesians 2. Read this together. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Stop right there. Who is the us? If you'll read the context, it's Jews and Gentiles. He says he's made us both how many? One. That he might create in himself, say it with me, one new man in place of the two. What are the two? Say it with me. So is the church, has the church replaced Israel? Some would say no, some would say yes, right, you see? They would say no because they would say God still has work to do with Israel in the future. And I actually, I respect that. Those who say uh, yes would say, man, how could you argue with Paul? He's creating a new man in Christ in place of them, and that's how he's made peace. My point is this, to show, I kind of brought that up to show you this. When he tells the people in the synagogue of Satan, I, I don't, um, and I'll just say it as the text says, you're going to find out that I haven't loved you. Instead, I've loved these people. He's saying, it's not that I've loved you just because you were Jewish. Church, listen to me. He's saying, you can't lay on your Jewish heritage and deny Christ's deity and think that you have some special place. That won't happen. Your national heritage is not in play here any longer. Never has been, actually. What's in play is faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says, just because you're a Jew, you're persecuting those who believe the truth about me, the truth is, you're of Satan, and they're actually the ones I've loved. Now watch this. When he uses the phrase, they'll come and bow down before you, they'll see that, that I have loved you. It's a very Old Testament phrase. It, it sounds like the kind of love that God has for his people, his Jewish people. Jacob, the patriarchs, and how through many centuries, God, God's love was steadfast and kept them. Those who believed him, he was true to his promises, brought Christ through this line. Here he says about a, a mainly Gentile church, all those who are national Jews but deny the truth about me, they'll see they're really of Satan. They'll see that I've actually loved you. Speaking of all those who comprise his church, both Jew and Gentile. It's, it's an amazing uh, issue of authority here. So, so what do we see from this? We see that Christ settles an authoritative issue. Who has the right to grant access to God's family? Only Jesus. And he looks to what we believe about who he is and what he's done. The next thing he does is he addresses the issue of, you might call it his activity, all right? So he addresses the issue of authority first. Who has the key? Jesus does. In fulfillment of the, of the example of Eliakim, he opens, he shuts, and he has that sole right to, to grant access. And he does not look to our national ethnicity, he looks to our heart. He next talks about the activity of Christ. What is the activity of Christ? I think he says a couple of things here. They're kind of tied into the three promises. Watch this, verse 9. 
He said, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, they're lying. I'll make them come and bow down before your feet. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? What's happening here? He's taking a, a promise mentioned in Isaiah as well as Ezekiel in which God said about the Israelite people that he would make the nations of the earth come and bow down before them. They're released from exile. They'll be brought back to the land. There's probably some eschatological promises here about the future time. But he's saying, I'll, I'll use Israel, I'll use my people as a way to draw the other nations to, to bow down. But here he's saying the opposite. Do you notice that? He's saying those who are actually Jews are going to come and bow down before those I've really loved, these, this Gentile slash Jewish church, this composition of, of two. So do you see what happens here? I'd even say it like this. In, in the first issue, he's using an iconic example, Eliakim, to show that just as he held the, the key to the city, Jesus holds the key to God's family. In this example about his activity, he uses an ironic example. And he says this, In earlier days, I brought the nations to bow down before you to see what I was doing. In this day, I'll bring the Jews to bow down before the Gentiles to show the world what I am doing. That's crazy, guys. But this is the activity that Jesus Christ is up to. Now, I think this also explains the phrase open door. Okay? Notice he says twice, I've set before you an open door. Now, what is that open door? Typically in Scripture, an open door refers to some type of opportunity. And to be quite specific with you, an evangelistic opportunity. Paul used this several times to talk about uh, places where there, was, there could be real fruit. He would describe them as an open door. Here's what I think is going on. Christ, and this, is, this, is be, this will blow your mind. Watch this. Christ is set before this church an open door of of Jewish people who currently are denying him. But he's going to do such a work in this primarily Gentile church that the missionary activity that they're going to pursue upon these Jewish peoples will at some point bring the very Jews who are denying Christ and his deity to their feet because they see what God is doing among the Gentile church. That seems to be what he's saying. Is it happening in the present here with this church? I don't know. But I do believe it's a promise fulfilled later. I believe later when, when, when Jesus says that around his throne will be people from every nation, language, tribe, people, you're going to find that suddenly, man, there are all kinds of people here, including Jews, who are here to say, wow, what has God done? He has brought together two people who are at odds and in himself made peace, and now they're one. They're his body. They're his church. All this will be done to the glory of God the Father. So when we talk about the activity of Christ, at least in this letter, what is it? Listen very carefully. It is the gathering of God's people to God's throne for God's glory. Even among Jews who say he's not who he said he was. I've met ones like that. There's a lot of them in Israel. Do you know that? When I went there, I forget what year it was. Our guide was one of those Jews. He knew more about the Bible than I'll probably ever know. He was steeped in Old Testament history, but he was confident Jesus was not the Messiah. Did not believe the resurrection. If this is a promise about what's going to come in the future, ultimately, 
then people like, and his name was Abraham, people like Abraham, not because they're a Jew, because they believe. Many people like Abraham will come to belief because they actually see what God is doing among the Gentiles. This is why Paul would say in Romans that the Jews are currently under a partial blindness. But the indication in Romans 11 is that that's going to be removed one day. Now here again, don't lose me. I told you to be kind of seminary-like. Hang with me. When is that blindness removed? Some believe it's already removed and there are massive Jews coming to Christ now because they see God's work in the church. Others believe it's still to come. They can fight that out. I don't even know if I have an opinion on that one, okay? But God does promise this. He will, through the missionary activity of a Gentile church, bring many Jews to his throne. That's awesome, isn't it? And that's an open door that's set before this church. And let me show you, in fact, some verses that would kind of prove this, indicate this, about what God's doing among people today, this missionary effort of the open door through the Gentile church. Watch this. Here's how Christ's activity of gathering his people, glorifying God's name, is, is happening currently. Paul said in Romans 11, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, the Gentiles have now received mercy because the Jews rejected Christ's authority and deity. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, watch this, say it with me, they also may now receive mercy. This would lend to the idea that even currently, among the blindness of the Jews, there's this remnant that's coming to Christ because of his work among Gentiles. Let's keep reading. Here's one more verse. Revelation 7. I mentioned this earlier. And I'll say more about this verse in a minute. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from. How many nations? Every nation. So it would be improper to say, well, the Jews are now forgotten. Because God will redeem people from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages. John says here, they were standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes, and they were crying out with a loud voice. Say it with me. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is where we're headed. And it is God's intention and Christ's activity to accomplish this. How? It says here, that he will actually use the Gentiles who are faithful to his name to show the Jews he is who he says he is. And then that way he'll be bringing all nations and languages and peoples to his throne all who believe of course because that's the stipulation he has sole authority to grant access based on that no matter what your nationality so i think this they've kept christ's word about these two issues who alone has the authority to grant access to the kingdom jesus and we're not going to deny that and what is jesus doing He's gathering people from all over the world to glorify God's name. He's doing one more thing as well. This is how the, the, the letter closes. As they endure and hold fast, as they keep God's word, they're persecuted, you know, and many of them are killed. He says, because they have, this is verse 10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. So the activity of Christ is not only gathering and uh, people for, to glorify God's name, it's guarding God's people, true? I'll keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. After all, he says, I'm coming soon. Now, 
How does God, how does God or Christ guard us from this hour? Okay, it's time for another take your pick kind of situation. You ready? Some would say this phrase means that he will take us out of that coming tribulation, that hour of testing, and we will not be part of it. They would say the rapture is what does that. So we're raptured away, we're snatched away, and I believe in the rapture, by the way. We're snatched away, and by that we're taken away from this hour of testing. And they would even say that the word from here is the word out. It's the word ek. So they have much, I keep saying they, you don't know where I land now, don't you? Uh, they have much proof, to be honest with you, a lot of evidence. This is a strong passage for a pre-tribulational view of the rapture. However, another view is that God will keep us through it. And here's Ryland. I think the church will endure, I would say, most of the tribulation. I, ha- I hold to a classic premillennial um, historic position on those issues. And so I believe that we'll endure much of the tribulation, but we will not endure that hour of testing. Because I think the hour of testing here refers to that final moment of God's wrath, what in Revelation 6 is called the wrath of the Lamb, in which he comes in judgment. I believe we are snatched away from that, which is why I hold that the rapture of the church occurs, you may say simultaneously, or just before the second coming of Christ. I think it's one event. Dispensational pre-tribulations don't hold to that, and they may actually be right. How's that, okay? This is probably where I'm 50.1, We don't need to argue about it. You say, why aren't they speaking? Because they're not speaking today. I'm the pastor. I'm speaking, so I get to kind of get my view out there, right? Come to the round table. They'll, They'll really defend their view. But I believe what's happening here is a promise from Jesus that he'll keep us from that, that final judgment when he comes at the end of these tribulation times. Now, I say that for this reason. In John 17, now, now follow me here. Again, I'm going to really exercise your brains. In John 17, he promised the disciples, John 17, 15, he said, I, I, he prays to the Father, I'm asking that you not take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. When he says keep them from the evil one, it's the same phrase and the only other construction in the New Testament of this exact verse. When he says keep them from the evil one, he uses the word out. And in that instance, it's translated as keeping them from the evil one, keeping them protected. So I tend to think this could easily mean that we are enduring which is why he calls for patient endurance. We must enter the kingdom, Jesus said, through many, or Paul said, through many tribulations. We're told that those who endure to the end shall be saved. It's my personal opinion that the church will go through much tribulation, but we will not go through the wrath at the end of it, which is when God comes to judge his enemies. In fact, I can lay this out in scripture for you this way. Would you skip to Revelation 6 for a moment? And for those who are still with me, let me show you some phrases that would give you some food for thought. Revelation 6 is the seven seals. In the fifth seal, we find people who have been martyred crying out, Lord, how much longer? Now, why would they cry that out if they were outside of tribulation? Why would they cry for God to do something if they weren't even part of it? That's my opinion here. So these 
martyrs are crying out, do something, judge them, avenge our blood. And he says, just a little longer. By the way, within this fifth seal, notice two phrases that are mentioned in the same letter to the church at Philadelphia. They call the sovereign Lord holy and true. Do you see that in verse uh, 10? Same title as in the church of Philadelphia. And then this same phrase in verse 11, excuse me, verse 10, he'll judge those who dwell on the earth. Same phrase. I think there's some, I don't want to say coincidence, but there's some matching going on here. That I tend to think we're, we're here up to this fifth seal because the sixth seal is the wrath of the Lamb mentioned next. At some point before the sixth seal, I think we are snatched away. That's the hour of testing, I believe. Watch what happens once the wrath of the Lamb occurs. There's a ceiling of 144,000 and then Revelation 7 in which suddenly all tribes and peoples are before the throne. Do you see that? Revelation 7, about verses 9 and so forth. So what I think happens is this. We are called to endure patiently, but we are saved from the wrath of God upon his enemies. That occurs, and suddenly before the throne we see what Christ's activity through the ages has done. is brought together a multitude of people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And we've not been a part of God's wrath, but we have faithfully and patiently endured difficult tribulation and now we're before the throne and we're saying salvation belongs to our God now that's how I see it smarter men than me and smarter women than me could say well Todd here's how I see it and they would have you convinced in five minutes the other direction okay I'm just letting you know what is promised here regardless of how you see it happening is protection he says because you've kept my word about patient endurance I will keep you. Now, how he does that could be up for debate in some sense, the timing of that. But this is not up for debate. Will God protect his people? The church should say a hearty what? You bet. Yes, amen. Say what you want. But God's not going to abandon you in a moment of tribulation or testing. If he raptures you before it all, hallelujah. We're saved from his wrath. If he waits till the end before he finally judges and snatches us away, praise God. But guess what? If you belong to God and you've not denied his name, no matter how difficult the world makes it on you, God will not abandon you. He will protect you. And how he does that, man, we can debate and argue and laugh and, and be in the same family. What we can say is, wow, I guess God's forgotten about me. I'm just going to turn my back on God. This is the whole point of the series. We cannot do that. No matter how the culture leans on us and presses against us, we have a God who will be faithful. So church, I say to you, no matter which argument you hold to, <coughs> excuse me, hold fast to Christ. He's coming. He'll protect you. Don't let the culture squeeze you and morph you, change you to where suddenly you don't even believe the truth about Christ. You find that you've adopted heretical ideas. No. Don't change even in a changing city. And you don't have to change because you have an unchangeable one. 
So much so that if you will hold fast, and when you hold fast, he says, I'll make you a pillar. Isn't that awesome? He's going to set your feet in stone in the new city, Jerusalem. He's going to give you a new name. All these things will be permanent, concrete, identifiable. Are they literal? I don't know. Okay? I, I just don't know. Someone said to me this week, of course they're literal, Todd. To which I said, well, are you going to be a literal pillar? And they said, no. I said, so when do you guys decide when it's literal and when it's not? And we laughed. And he said, when do you guys? And we kind of went back and forth. So I don't know. Here's what I do know. God will take care of his own. And he will solidly secure us in the new Jerusalem which, will be, which, by the way, is the city of God, which will be comprised of people from all nations who have believed the truth about Jesus. He will be the temple. He will be the light. There'll be no need for a sun or a moon. And we'll be God's people. He'll be our God. That's what's coming. So I, I, I have no desire to adjust my doctrinal posture for temporary comfort among the culture. I would much rather keep my eye on the prize and the pillar-like status that's coming, wouldn't you? And just hold fast. After all, if they take your life, is that really bad news based on this letter? (laughs) Man, you've got a great day coming. This is why I think the letter in a nutshell says this. This is what the Philadelphians needed assurance of, all right? Let's show the take-home truth, can we? That unchanging allegiance to Jesus' character and conduct, that he has authority and that his activity is to gather his people and to glorify God's name, to guard those people. Unchanging allegiance to Jesus' character and conduct identifies and fortifies the true people of God. And so our doctrine, what we believe, undergirds us, protects us because it's the truth about Jesus and who he is and what he does. It identifies us. Hey, yes, I do believe this is about Christ. I believe that. And because I believe that, because it's true about him, then it has this resulting amount of or set of, of consequences. This is the true people of God. Not your national heritage, not where or who you're born to, But do you believe the truth about Jesus? And that is what will determine how well you hold up, what you enjoy, how you endure. So again, this week, number six, I call you to an unchanging allegiance to doctrine and to truth that's been passed down to us for centuries. All right? I'll close with one last application. Let's see if there's one or two questions. Real quickly, I need to hurry through this. Are there a few questions? Oh, there's none? Okay. Okay. I'll take that the class went well. How does that sound? Okay. I'm not sure it did by those laughs. Um, I hope you have a lot of questions. You're maybe even thinking, I didn't catch all that. You can email me or come to the uh, forum, the roundtable. But I do want to make one application. And in fact, let me have the band join me. Can you guys just go ahead and join me up here? That keeps me kind of moving in the right direction if I see them behind me and feel them right here with me, okay? All of this says to us that we should do what this church did. We should... Hold fast to what you have. Do you see that phrase in verse 11? This is our task as well. Let me put some flesh on that. What does it mean? It means we should get a grip 
on gospel truth and get a grip on gospel task. Let me define that. Listen very carefully. And some of you are going to squirm, and you need to squirm. Getting a grip on gospel truth, which is simply, this is job one for us, holding what we've received, holding fast what we have. Getting a grip on gospel truth is related to the authority issue. In other words, who has the right to say who's in and who's out? I'll tell you who has the right. One person. His name is Jesus. So by nature of that argument, by nature of that deduction, watch this. We are part of an exclusive religion. I'm going to use that word in a bad way. Faith. Whatever you want to call it. Set of beliefs. Pluralism doesn't work with Christianity. I don't want to be arrogant or proud. Please hear my heart. However this is broadcast, whoever's watching, we have folks in Texas, we have folks in Nevada. However this is heard, listen, I, I promise my conscience clear before God, there's no arrogance or pride, but I will not forsake clarity. There is one way to God. His name is Jesus. That's an exclusivity that we can't back away from. We can't find a way to water that down so the culture's pleased. There's no, there's no bridge to syncretism for Christianity, okay? This is who we are. We must get a grip on gospel truth that, that Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by Jesus. And so without any arrogance or pride, I just want to say to anyone here, if you've been trusting any other person to grant you access to God's family, like your parents, they may be awesome people, but they're not Jesus. Like maybe your political party. No matter what their color, they're not Jesus. Maybe like your donations. Maybe your morality. Maybe your connections. You can bring whatever works you want to the cross. None of them climb up that cross and are crucified. Only Jesus. Amen, church? And so without any apology, I need to ask you and say to you and just encourage you with your leaders, your staff, your deacons, your elders, we hold to an exclusive gospel. You will be made fun of for that. You'll be ridiculed for that. You'll be laughed at. You'll be called narrow-minded. You'll be considered kind of odd. And there's no way around it. So my advice to you as your pastor is just get used to it. Smile. Learn how to speak kindly. Wear a big smile and have a strong spine. Because the minute you change that, the ship is sunk. We have an exclusive truth. And we need to get a grip on that understanding and hold to it. That also means then we have to get a grip on gospel task, which is what? If the gospel truth centers on, it, on its exclusivity, then gospel task means that the nature of what Christ is doing is evangelistic. He's calling people to believe this exclusive truth so that they might be saved. And we're the vessels by which God heralds and proclaims his message For how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach if they're not sent? Are you hearing me, guys? Is this making sense? You and I cannot be silent. We cannot live in a closet. We can't move to Montana and bare our heads and think the culture is going to hell in a handbasket. 
If it is, it's more the reason to stay in it, but not of it. Because God, through Christ, is on a global, historic mission to garner and gather every single one of his elect together. And he will do that. And he's going to bring them to his throne to where they will worship the Lamb and glorify the Father. That's the gospel task we have before us. And if you're not plugged in to the mobilizing effort of this church to get the gospel to every part of the globe, to do our part to get the gospel to every part of the globe, you're missing out on the central activity of God the Son. So do you see why this letter matters? Because even with all the debatable eschatology, job one for us is to hold fast, which means when they ridicule you for your exclusivity, don't you dare budge. Don't don't go back. Don't loosen your grip on the gospel. There's no, I mean, there's no middle ground, all right? But even in that tight grip on who Jesus is as the only Savior, we with kindness, with ambassador-like status, and with love in our hearts appeal to the world to believe. This was why Philadelphia had no criticism, because they held to the truth and they were fervent about the task. And I pray we will be too. Will you pray with me? I know we're overdue.